1: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The first play written by a black woman to be produced on Broadway was A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. Her Extraordinary Life was documented in a film by Tracy Heather Strain, whom we'll hear later this hour. First, with her novel The X Talk, Rachel Lynn Solomon has written a love story. The object of that love is public radio. Other love themes in The X Talk include that of family, friends, dogs, and above all, romantic love. This book is also laugh out loud funny. I'm talking hilarious. The author joins us now via Zoom. Rachel Lynn Solomon, welcome to City Lights.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Lois. I'm happy to be here.
1: We meet Dominic Young in the first sentence of this story, as described by Shea Goldstein. Would you introduce the main characters of the X-Talk?
2: Absolutely. So Shay Goldstein is the point of view character, the main character, and she has been working as a producer at a Seattle public radio station since she was in college. And her whole life she has wanted to work in public radio, even though in the past she thought she would grow up to become a host, that didn't quite work, work out. Um, but she's really used to being kind of the wonder She started doing radio as an intern and then just worked her way up. And she's now a senior producer at age 29. And then on the other hand, you know, the flip side of that is Dominic, who is coming in fresh off a master's program in journalism. He's a bit younger than she is. Uh, He's never worked in radio, and within the first few months of starting at the station, he gets a chance to go on the air, and she is extremely jealous, extremely angry, um, but she also finds him extremely attractive, so what to do from there, but, you know, it's a setup to um, kind of a classic enemies-to-lovers story uh, set against the backdrop of public radio.
1: (sighs) Dominic is serious about investigative journalism, exposing corruption in government, taking down corporations, helping to end bigotry. And far too often, Dominic mentions his elite journalism education at Northwestern, which you mentioned. How does he end up as a guest on Puget Sounds, the show Shay produces?
2: So at the very beginning, uh, the two of them are clashing because Dominic is using the sound booth that Shay has reserved every day at a certain time. um, And she's just waiting for him to vacate the booth so that she can use it. Um, So that's just one frustration on top of many. Um, But he is working on a breaking news story involving a mayor scandal. Um, And Shay works on a news talk show. She's a producer, and her news director tells her that she has to put him on the show. So not only is he getting to go on the air before she does, she has to completely disregard everything they already had planned for the day so that this guy she can't stand can go on the radio and talk about his reporting.
1: Would you explain how the program The X Talk comes about at... Pacific Public Radio, PPR.
2: Yes. Pacific Public Radio is what I called the, the fictional Seattle station. And the X-Talk comes out of a brainstorming meeting that the senior staff have at the station. They are brainstorming some new shows. It's clear that there are going to be some budget cuts. The station is struggling a little bit. And the show that Shay has worked on for years and years is on the chopping block. And everyone's just kind of going around suggesting things. Dominic being Dominic is suggesting some investigative newsy type shows. And she just randomly throws out the idea of a dating show. Her mom is about to be remarried. Her friend is in a long-term relationship and she's just feeling a little left behind with, with regard to dating. And everyone figures, you know, a dating show, it's kind of been done before. And then again, just kind of randomly, she's like, what about a dating show hosted by exes? And everyone is really into this idea. And this is where I really stretch the bounds of reality a little bit, because I think it would be very difficult to get this kind of show on the air on public radio, (laughs) especially because since there aren't any exes at the station, their boss thinks that Shay and Dominic would be perfect to host the show because they are constantly getting into it at work and just really butting heads. Um, so he thinks, you know, it wouldn't be that much of a stretch if we told everyone that you're exes and they spend a lot of time crafting their backstory and people really latch onto this idea of the two of them as fake exes, unbeknownst to to the, their listenership, um, hosting the show and people get very invested in them the way that I think a lot of us as listeners get invested in in hosts and public radio personalities.
1: Yeah, let's talk about the program director, Kent. How does he embody the less idealistic side of public radio?
2: Yes. So Shay's boss, Kent, is a very seasoned public radio personality. He spent a lot of time on the air, and now he's in a managerial position. And he is the kind of, you know, older white man that I think a lot of young women have worked with and know very well. He's not outright sexist or misogynistic in the things that he says it's more some of the subtle jabs that it really takes shay a while to see oh he is actually he does not have the kind of respect for me that a boss should you know she's asked to take notes in a meeting because she's so good at that or she realizes that she has been stuck on kitchen duty more than other people Um, or he tells her that she likes because she's really into feature stories. Um, he tells her that she likes the softer stories. But I also think Kent is the kind of person who would never in a million years consider himself sexist. I think he really pats himself on the back for hiring women and people of color and does not at all um, see himself as part of the problem. And I, it was really important to me that he not be a hugely cartoonish villain, because I think when you have those kinds of villains, they're harder for people to recognize. And I think with this subtlety, the reader is kind of realizing, alongside Shay, as it takes her a little while, you know, that actually he he isn't a great guy.
1: Hmm. There are a few things Dominic and Shay have in common, even though they don't get along at all in the beginning. Each believes in the power of radio for storytelling and the intimacy of the medium. As a young girl, Shay used to create radio shows with her dad, and Dominic's mother learned to speak English through listening to NPR. What happens when Dominic is told he'll be reassigned from the newsroom to co-host the X Talk?
2: He is not thrilled, (laughs) He, you know, being someone who feels that the radio is for news and only news, he does not love the idea of, first of all, lying to their listeners by pretending to be exes. And second of all, working on a show that he feels is just pure fluff. And I say that in air quotes because I am very much someone who's more into the feature type stories and, and the deep dives and really human interest pieces. So he is immediately against it, but their boss kind of subtly threatens their jobs because, you know, Shay's show is going to be canceled and Dominic is the station's newest hire. He's very green. So this is kind of presented to both of them as a last ditch chance to save their jobs. But Shay really does have to do a bit of groveling to get him on board with the idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah. With your setting of Pacific Public Radio in Seattle, you give readers quite the inside perspective of an NPR affiliate. I laughed at Shay's comment that working in public radio is like serving on the Supreme Court. <laughs> most, most people are there for a very long time. Rachel, what is your own experience? working in public radio?
2: So I started out similarly to Shay. I was really focused on public radio in college. I graduated early because I had so much internship credit because I was just obsessed with journalism. And that was the only thing I could see for myself. I came to it somewhat a little bit later than she did, though. I didn't discover it until I think it was my senior year of high school that I started listening to This American Life, and it just kind of changed me the way I think it it changed a lot of people um, and the reason it became so popular. So while I was still in college, I started interning at one of Seattle's public radio news stations, and we're very lucky here to have two of them. And I did some freelancing for the other one as well. Uh, And then once I graduated, I very briefly worked in commercial radio. There are a couple um, (laughs) jokes about commercial radio and some of the jingles that you just can never get stuck out of your head, Mm -hmm. (laughs) very much taken from my experience. But I found out very quickly that that just wasn't a good fit. Uh, And then I was lucky enough to do some more fill-in work at, at our Seattle station, KUOW and then I wound up producing a weekly pre-recorded show for several years.
1: Well, I think being a senior in high school is still coming to public radio as a youngster, although we are absolutely thrilled to see how well we are doing with the age 18 to 25 demographic now. But, true, Shay thinks she may be the only nine-year-old who geeked out on card talk, (laughs) as she put it. So strong is Shay's professional identity. (laughs) She, She realizes she can train her dog if she frames the situation as being the producer of his life. Would you talk about Steve?
2: Definitely. So (laughs) Steve is a bit of a disaster dog, and he actually grew out of a joke that the main character's friend makes to her in the second chapter of the book. Um, So like I said earlier, Shay's best friend and her mom are in long-term relationships, and Shay is feeling a little left behind, a little lonely. Shay has also recently bought a house, Um, but it feels very empty and she doesn't quite know, you know, what to put in it or what work to do on it. It just feels like this marker of adulthood that she thought she had to have, but it just doesn't feel quite right. So she's out to dinner with her friend and her friend, or she tells her friend, um, you know, do you want to come over after this? And her friend is like, you know, you can be alone in your house. And if not get a dog, (laughs) um, (laughs) So I was like oh maybe I could have this just be a subplot about Shay learning how to care for a dog so several chapters later she goes to the humane society and she falls in love with this chaotic chihuahua mix who is based off my own he has an underbite and he's They don't want her to adopt him because he's been a difficult dog and he went home with another family, but it didn't work out, but she just falls in love with him. So yeah, she takes him home and she sleeps on the couch that first night because he claims the bed. Uh,
1: (laughs) A chihuahua.
2: Yes. (laughs) But you know, he's growling and she doesn't want to get too close. And it takes her a while to become more confident with him. She actually hires a dog trainer that she used to have on her previous show. And I really liked the idea of showing someone learning to care for an animal as one of these like elements of adulthood that I don't think we see a lot of in fiction. There's a lot of focus on women starting families and, you know, do I want kids? Do I want to get married? But I hadn't really seen a plot that focused on rescuing a dog and how to care for that animal, um, at, le- at least not in in a romantic comedy. I, I know there are some, but um, one where it was, you know, a wouldn't say it's a significant subplot, but, but it's there. And I just liked how it shows some of her growth as an adult and her becoming more confident and sure of herself.
1: His name is distinguished. Where does the middle name Rogers come from?
2: So the dog's name is Steve, and she decides that his full name is Steve Rogers after um, Captain America's <laughs> alter ego, um, <laughs> and her last name is Goldstein, so she she calls him Steve Rogers Goldstein, and the joke is that it is a very traditional Jewish name, which it absolutely is not.
1: <laughs> Author Rachel Lynn Solomon talking about her new book, The X-Talk, We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. We're back with author Rachel Lynn Solomon. Her new romantic comedy novel, The X-Talk, is set at a fictional public radio station in Seattle, where two journalists pretend to be exes and deliver relationship advice live on air. Turns out the listeners love Shay and Dominic, who co-host the X Talk. I asked Rachel Solomon to discuss the impact of the show's success.
2: This was actually one of the most challenging things to show in the book. And one thing I kind of dragged my feet on a little bit, because throughout the book are some transcripts from the radio show. And it's really tough to show, okay, I want this show to be skyrocketing in popularity, but now I have to write this thing that is supposedly getting very popular and make it believable to the reader that these interactions these characters are having on air are something that people are really responding to. So originally those transcripts were very short and I'm very glad that my agent and my editor asked for a little more of them because otherwise you just don't see it you don't see that rise in popularity um but what i was really basing it on is just the relationship that a lot of us as listeners have with the hosts of shows that we're really attached to i know that just with some of my favorite podcasts like friends of mine we will constantly like use inside jokes from that podcast in our regular lives and we view those hosts as almost friends even though they don't know us but you talk about them like oh did you did you hear what jamie said the other day um it just i really love that relationship between a listener and and a host and especially when people are talking about something a little more personal and and giving more information about their personal lives, even if, in this case, it is a lie that the listeners don't know about. You just feel this really strong connection.
1: Well, that comes through resoundingly. Thank you. You know you've arrived when you make the Apple Podcasts Top 100. And just as some years back, we saw Brangelina and Benefer for the hosts of the X Talk, hashtag Shaminik is <laughs> yes. trending. Or it would it be shamanic? Yes. <laughs> shamanic is fun sounding. When Shay is scared, she recites something to herself that I would love for you to read. Page 177, the last paragraph and final sentence.
2: Oh, yep, I remember. I knew exactly what you were going to say. <laughs> I pray to my radio gods, the ones who act cool and collected in even the most hostile of interviews. If Terry Gross survived her nightmare interview with Gene Simmons, then I can do this. Terry Gross, Rachel Martin, Audie Cornish, give me strength.
1: I hope they know about this paragraph. <laughs>
2: <Have> <laughs> I'm you, have, sure they do.
1: <laughs> I think you need to send it. To, I think they need to read the book. One serious aspect of this story is its exploration of grief. What does Shay ultimately realize about loss?
2: I really love that question because this was another thing that grew organically out of the drafting process. So Shay and her dad really connected over public radio. He had an electronics repair shop where he fixed up old radios and various other gadgets. Um, and he passed away her senior year of high school. So it is a loss that really deeply impacted her. And she has spent a lot of her professional life wondering how he would feel about the things that she's doing and wanting to make someone proud who can never tell you, I'm proud of you. So a lot of her arc is about realizing what she wants separate from what she and her dad wanted or what her dad might've been happy for her to have and gaining a, a bit of independence with regard to her career while also you know still respecting those memories that she has and recognizing that there would have been more than one way to make him happy and what she's doing right now ultimately is is maybe not not where she should be you know lying on the radio and you just know not really a spoiler but you know it's going to go up in flames eventually <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh for A scene outdoors on a sunny day, you write, Gloomy introversion is so built into our DNA as Seattleites that any bit of vitamin D turns us into strangely social creatures. Rachel, you have vivid descriptions of places around the city, how is Seattle important to this story?
2: I really love talking about Seattle and writing about Seattle. So I've lived here my whole life and there is just something here that feels so poetic and cinematic to me. I think there's a reason that so many classic romantic comedies, I mean obviously Sleepless in Seattle, but but plenty of others are set in the Pacific Northwest and that they, I think there's just an inherent romanticism to this gloomy weather, but also you know, as soon as it's sunny, it's it's been you know high fifties and people are out in shorts right now. That is how how sun starved we get. But I just love exploring all the quirkiness of Seattle. People here are just very aware and very engaged. Um, so I really love that that element of it. And there's just so much creativity. I think just with with startup cultures with with tech, with art. And I i don't know, sometimes I wonder if it flourishes here because it's so gloomy that, that none of us have anything else to do the, the rest of the year. But um, I actually, I love the rain. And I don't know if it's just because I was born here. But what my favorite thing to do is writing inside when it's raining. Uh,
1: well, maybe the need to perk up a bit has brought about some of the world's great coffee from your city.
2: Oh, yes. And coffee, too. <laughs> I uh, always joke that I am, must be one of the few people in Seattle that is not a coffee person. Really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Do you drink caffeinated tea?
2: I don't. And not even when I worked in commercial radio on a morning show and I had to be there at two in the morning. Not even then.
1: Oh, my.
2: Okay. I, just a natural morning person for, for better or for worse. It is the the burden I, ca- I carry. <laughs> no.
1: That's a great thing, especially for that early morning show. The show, The X-Talk, was built on a lie. The idea that the two co-hosts once dated, broke up, and were then giving relationship advice over the air. The book, The X-Talk, has such excitement in the way it unfolds and suspense toward the end. Is there anything more we can say without spoilers?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I could say, you know, everything kind of culminates in a big podcasting festival <laughs> that that Shay and G- Dominic go to toward the end of the book that was a lot of fun to write. Uh, but I guess something without spoiling, one of my favorite bits to write was uh, something that takes place around the midpoint. And that's when they get a call from a listener live on the air who questions the validity of their relationship. Uh, They have found something online that indicates maybe they weren't actually dating the way that they said they were. So Shay and Dominic's boss books an Airbnb for them um, on an island in the Pacific Northwest and tells them to spend the weekend together and not to come back until they know everything about each other. And I just love taking two people who have a lot of complicated feelings for each other and putting them in a confined space and seeing what happens. So that was Hmm. a lot of fun.
1: Well, it was a lot of fun to read too.
2: Thank you. Shay has
1: socks with the design of a fish holding a microphone beneath the words Ira Bass. (laughs) Do such public radio socks exist?
2: Oh, my gosh. I am not sure. I would be surprised if they didn't. But <laughs> so maybe if not, I need to make some. I, you know, I think sometimes I write my way up to a pun just so I can <laughs> just so I can entertain myself. But uh, they've got to be out there somewhere.
1: I think those would make a fabulous pledge. Thank you. You need to contact This American Life. <laughs> I have so enjoyed talking with you and really delighted in reading this book. Rachel Solomon, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Lois. This was really wonderful.
1: Former public radio producer and author Rachel Lynn Solomon. Her new novel is The X-Talk. In her book, I move a lot, and that's okay. Shermaine perry Knights teaches children how to cope and deal with rapid change and relocating. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the author about writing her first children's book and how it reflected her own childhood.
3: I grew up in the military. I was born at one station. A couple of weeks later, we shipped out to another one. (laughs) Several weeks after that, we moved overseas. So um, I moved every year or two or three years growing up in the military. And I said, I really want to talk about our experience because I don't see us represented in books as much.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I can't think of a military children's book, you know, especially one that moved around a lot and everything and the ins and outs of that. I noticed in the book that Grace has biracial parents. Was this similar to your own childhood?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: That's all, I really liked that aspect too, because I feel that you don't see that much in children's books either.
3: So I thought about that as well, because growing up in the military, you have a lot of families that are bicultural, biracial, and everyone celebrates that diversity. I learned a lot from my Filipino friends and my Hispanic friends and my friends of different backgrounds. My, fa- my family's from Trinidad and Tobago. So my mom's side is black and white and Indian, and my dad is African American from here in the U.S. Two different cultures several different races within one family, and you learn a lot and you just explore. And so I saw that as a theme around other military families. I said, you need to see more mixture among families and books. I don't see that enough in children's books.
2: Can you start by giving our listeners a brief synopsis of, I moved a lot and that's okay.
3: Yes, I move a lot and that's okay represents a military child's experience in a biracial, bicultural family. And Grace is a young girl who moves a lot because of her dad's job in the military. She loves new adventures, but every time you have to leave everything and everyone behind, it creates new challenges for you. So this student like myself, because this represents when we moved from Georgia to Italy, you are leaving everyone behind. You're learning a new culture, a new language, trying new food, and really trying to adjust to a new environment but you don't want to forget the people you left behind. And so this is a dangerous balance between the hope you feel and sometimes you feel hopeless in the middle of the move. And so people say freedom isn't free, but I would say also for the military brat, because we don't typically talk about the ins and outs of their emotional awareness.
2: How could this book have been a valuable resource for you growing up, moving around as much as you did?
3: Wow, um, there, there were no books, at least at least at the time that I grew up. There were no books that talked about the military kid experience. There were no books talking from a child's perspective on diverse, celebrating diversity and, you know, how representation matters. There were no books talking about resilience. You had conversations at home and you had conversations among those that you knew. This would have been a valuable resource for me. I probably would not have cried the way I did when I lost Cody. If I read that some other child lost their favorite stuffed animal, but they found a great friend later on. You know, I, I would not have had some of the incredible lows when you when you're you're waving goodbye to people at the airport. If you know that there's hope on the other side, you know, just just a moment you experience you wish you had a book like this, just so you can you can talk about it. You can feel as though this adventure is your own. And so for me, books all represent a great adventure. You can get lost in it, create the world as your own. And I would have lived in a book like this
1: author Shermaine Perry-Knight, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Her children's book is I Move a Lot, and That's Okay. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. The playwright Lorraine Hansberry is famous for her work A Raisin in the Sun. The first play written by an African-American woman to be produced on Broadway, less known, is that her influence went far beyond that classic. Tracy Heather Strain tells the story of the brief yet extraordinary life of Lorraine Hansberry in her documentary, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. When I spoke with Strain in 2018... She explained how her love of Hansberry's writing led her to become a filmmaker.
4: I'm not exactly sure what inspired me, but when I first encountered Lorraine Hansberry when I was 17, there was something about her as presented in the play to be young, gifted, and black that just touched me. I'd never encountered an African-American woman who thought about race and class and gender the way it was presented in that play. She just kind of stayed in my head. And then years later when Spike Lee and other independents were making a call to make black film, even though I wasn't a filmmaker, I was like, there should be a film about Lorraine Hansberry. So this is the mid 80s and I get into filmmaking and eventually here we are. But we count the beginning of this project in 2014, but I'd been thinking about Lorraine and doing research on and off for years. So yes, it is more than
1: just a sort of labor of love. It's almost like a calling. It sounds like it and um, you deliver. It's great to hear. Thank you. <laughs> truly. Your film conveys how much Lorraine Hansberry ought to be known. Her work has such resonance in our own time. Sidney Poitier's Oscar for his performance in Lilies of the Field, which was released in 1964, five years after the Broadway premiere of the Raisin in the Sun. How important was Sidney Poitier to the success of the play, and later the film? Sidney Poitier was very important to the
4: success of A Raisin in the Sun, even though it was very challenging for them to raise the money for the play because no one wanted to fund a play about African Americans. That was a drama. Because Sidney Poitier was already the biggest black movie star they were able to raise money based on his involvement. And he's the one that already knew Lloyd Richards and recommended his friend Lloyd Richards to be the director. By the way, A Raisin in the Sun is the first play by an African American woman to be produced on Broadway.
1: Langston Hughes had a play on Broadway before that. So Sidney Poitier was crucial to getting the funding for the play and later the movie. I mean, What did it take? Almost a
4: year? Yes, Phil Rose was Lorraine Hansberry's friend and her husband's friend through their radical left circles. And he was a record producer, and he came to the first reading of the play that became A Raisin in the Sun, and was really struck by the characters. And he calls her up and says, I want to produce your play, and I want to produce it on Broadway. And I think Lorraine, based on what I know from the research, she didn't expect her play to go to Broadway. She thought her play would be performed maybe in Harlem like her friends who were playwrights' plays had been performed. So, yeah, it was challenging from the raise the money. In fact, before there was a Kickstarter, it seemed like Raisin in the Sun was the money was raised in small increments. Harry Belafonte was one of the larger funders of uh, A Raisin in the Sun, but Phil Rose took the money where he could get it, and he only had enough money for tryouts in two cities, New Haven and Philadelphia. And fortunately, each time it was performed, momentum started gathering, but they were doing this without any guarantee of a New York theater. And fortunately, one of the Schubert's came to one of the Philadelphia performances and said, okay, we can do this. We will put you into New York. The thing that we don't have a chance to get into in the documentary is they didn't have a theater quite yet, so they sent the production to Chicago, and then they brought them into New York.
1: And of course, with Lorraine Hansberry being from Chicago, there was significance in that too. For a playwright, Lorraine Hansberry's own life Her own life story has quite a dramatic narrative. Would you tell us about her roots?
4: Yeah, sure. Lorraine was born in the south side of Chicago in 1930. She was born to two parents who had gone to college. Her father became successful in real estate. He bought buildings and then cut them up into kitchenettes. Uh, He was known as the kitchenette king and he was successful at it. Lorraine was the youngest of four children, separated by seven years, and so she spent a lot of time by herself, and her personality also seems to be one of a watcher, thinker, reader, and and she took in everything that was going on on the South Side during the Depression, during World War II, and was already interested in writing. She was very, very verbal. She also had a family that debated ideas. People came through the house, as her cousin Chanel Perry says. They listened to these people talk, and they were also a very race-conscious family in the sense that they felt like it was their duty because they had were given much to do things to help change the fortunes of other African Americans. And one of the major things they were involved in is trying to open up more homes for African Americans, because most everyone was segregated in the south side of Chicago. Indeed.
1: And so here, she's from this well-educated, well-to-do family. But that didn't protect her from racism. And she had a transformative, shocking experience as a little girl.
4: Yes, when she was seven years old, her family, as part of a test case, moved to an all-white street, and they were. She and her sister were sitting on the porch, and a mob came, and the they had like a family bodyguard got them inside the house. But someone threw a brick, and the brick or piece of mortar almost hit Lorraine, and it was a traumatic thing that stayed with her. And the original ending of what became *A Raisin in the Sun* actually ended with the family moving out into the white neighborhood with a mob coming. So you can tell that, you know, it really resonated with her. It was was quite an emotional
1: event for her. and, And such a little girl. And, of course, sadly, countless families have to explain this sort of mentality to innocent children. We have this very refined, super intellectual person in the form of Lorraine Hansberry, who believes in the power of art, and theater in particular, to take on social issues. And it's all the more remarkable, I think, that Hensbury wanted to portray the struggles of working class Negroes.
4: She was very radical in her politics. And because of her politics on the left, and she had been a a member of the Communist Party for a period of time, you know, the class analysis, the working class people were part of what she was focused on. She felt like it's from the people who were the working class that were gonna change society. And so while, you know, she's from this sort of talented 10th kind of family, she felt the working people, men and women, were the ones who really were gonna make, and had to make the change for a new world order in a, in a certain way. Yes.
1: So, in addition to depicting the everyday concerns of working class black people, what was extraordinary about her treatment of the characters in Raisin?
4: First of all, as um, Amani Perry says on camera, this is like The first time, Lorraine is presenting the interior life of the African-American experience, but also the interior of specific characters. So take, for example, the character Benita. Benita is a character based on her own self. She said, I was making fun of my 22-year-old self. And, um, you know, so the college girl trying a lot of different things wants to be something in the world. She wants to be a doctor. And she has this choice between two young men in her life. And, and so they represent, you know, one guy represents the kind of boy from a family similar to her own, you know, well-off. And then she has the African student, revolutionary, you know, as the other suitor. And so these are things that I think Hansbury had to encounter and wrestle with her, herself. So is trying to make these kinds of choices and find her way. So you have that. But then you have this larger experience of, you know, African-Americans... People have all different aspirations and interests and goals, and she tries to present a a range of experiences. The mother, she came up to Chicago as part of the Great Migration. That's one story right there. That's an important story in the American story. You know, the Great Migration really changed American cities. Oh yes. But the dialogue
1: in A Raisin in the Sun reflects that new world after migrating to Chicago. We have a clip of Sidney Poitier and Ruby D that reveals some of the concerns, the struggles of our characters.
0: Charlie Atkins was a good for nothing, too, wasn't he? when he wanted me to go in the dry cleaning business with him. Now he's grossing $100,000 a year, $100,000 a year. Still call him a loud mouth good for nothing. Oh, Walter. Oh, Walter. You're tired, ain't you, baby? You oh so tired of everything. Me, the boy, the way we live in this beat up hole, everything, moaning and groaning all the time, but you wouldn't do nothing to help, would you? I mean, you couldn't be on my side that long for nothing. Walter,
1: Good. please, leave me alone.
0: Man needs a woman to back him up here. Walter! Know. Mama would listen to you. You know she listens to you more you do me and Benny. She thinks more of you. Look, all you got to do is sit down with her one morning when you're having your coffee and talking about things like you do. Just say kind of easy like that you've been thinking about this little deal Walter Lee so interested in about the store and all. Just keep sipping away at your coffee like what you're saying. Ain't that important to you? Before you know it, she's listening good and asking you questions. Then when I come home, I fill in the details. Please leave me alone. Okay. This is a fly-by-night operation. I mean, we got this thing figured out, me, William Bobo.
1: What is Sidney Poitier as Walter Lee? What is he pleading for?
4: He wants his wife to support this idea that he has to invest in a liquor store. And the the play and the film is about this clash of what to do with a $10,000 insurance check that the family received after... Walter Lee's character, his father died. I mean Walter Lee's father's character died. Everyone wants something different. The mother wants to move the family out of this cramped kitchenette where, you know, Walter Lee's son has to sleep on the couch and doesn't get enough sleep because sometimes Walter Lee's, you know, hanging out with his friends late at night. The grandmother or you know, Lena Younger and Benita share a room. So it's really crowd and she feels the mother feels like it's important for the family to have its own place. And she once wanted to support her daughter Benita's dream of becoming a doctor. But Sidney Poitier's character, Walter Lee, wants to go into business. He's a chauffeur and he sees, he drives around men who are doing deals and he sees these young people and he thinks, as Sidney Poitier says in the film, he thought his character had knew what he was doing, he had the wherewithal. But Sidney talks about how his character really didn't really have, you know, what it took to even start a liquor store, because he didn't have the experience, but he he wanted to be a man, as Sydney says.
1: An important thread throughout your documentary is Lorraine Hansberry's willingness to defy convention. You mentioned the character of Beneatha. What are some other examples? She married a white man, and we said she was a member of the Communist Party. How else did her defiance of convention play out in her life?
4: Well, she was, as you mentioned earlier in the show, she was she believed in the power of art. So one of the things is that she was really outspoken in terms of issues like peace movements. And when Paul Robeson's passport was canceled and he couldn't travel to the World Peace Conference in Uruguay, she took his place. And in fact, she told the State Department she was going to Europe. She went to this, quote, unquote, illegal peace conference in Uruguay. And then when she came back, her passport was canceled. And it, that's what started her lifelong surveillance by the FBI. Oh,
1: so she, Such a badge of honor in those days. <laughs> if you were really a great artist, you were on Hoover's list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
4: so, uh, so there's that. And then some people, a lot of people have been aware for some time that Lorraine Hansberry was secretly... A married lesbian, and so that's for some people that may be a new revelation. But uh, a lot of people look at the writings that she did to the publication, the latter, which was a publication of uh, an organization called the Daughters of Beladis. And uh, she, like everything she did, she wrestled with ideas and analyzed it. And she was analyzing being a married lesbian and, and issues related to being homosexual. So, like, again, like everything else, it wasn't just light. She really wanted to, like, examine things. And she had ideas about this and that and looked forward to society changing.
1: Remained on very good terms with her husband. They were great friends.
4: Yes, they were. We have her quoted in the documentary. Um, she said, Bob and I have been, Bob being Robert Namoroff, I've been getting divorced for years, but we remain the closest of friends, I suppose. So <laughs> uh, he, if you look in her papers, you see that he took care of things. He interacted with her. He produced her second and last play to premiere on Broadway while she was still alive called The Sign in Sidney Brustein's Window. So yes, he was trying to, you know, he was making things happen. They didn't get divorced until early 1964. He went and got a Mexican divorce because in New York you couldn't just get a divorce very easily, but no one knew until she died that they had been divorced for almost a year. Well,
1: in fact, he it was Robert Nemiroff who knew about her cancer before she did.
4: Yes. In fact, a lot of people knew about her cancer before she did. We did research on this, and and we talked with a lot of people. And my parents are born in the 30s, and my in-laws also. And so everyone confirmed back then, people didn't often did not tell you that you had cancer. I don't know if anyone saw Mad Men, but when Betty got cancer, they called her husband in. They did tell her, but... It, it was handled very differently, and we even found research to confirm that in that time period, in the 60s, doctors did not often tell their patients that they had cancer. So it's hard to know if she would have made different choices had she known, but we were fortunate that Bert DeLugoff, who was her friend and her tenant, you know, said, I was one of the people who made the decision not to tell her he was a physician.
1: In addressing her activism in the film, you brought out very young upon moving to New York after two years of college at the University of Wisconsin, she moved to New York to write for Freedom, which was a publication, Paul Ropes, and founded, mm-hmm. wasn't it?
4: Yes, yeah. um, shortly after she moved to New York for what she described as an education of another kind... She joined the staff at Freedom, first as a typist and sort of, you know, entry-level person, did a lot of different things, and then but she also started writing and moved up very quickly. She was surrounded by artists and activists, including Paul Robeson, who was an internationally famous singer, actor, Not activist. Sweet. Yeah, he, was, he, was, he, wanted, he had a law degree, you know, and, and he, expected, he wanted to be a lawyer, but because of discrimination, he, he couldn't get, you know, the kind of job that was commensurate with his, his education. So imagine just being in a, a newspaper with Paul Robeson, And then you have Du Bois working nearby who also believed in the power of art and artists to change things. Alice Childress is working there who was an actress who had been in Anna Lucasta on Broadway. She was writing plays and things. And there's all these other women, men as well, but there was also a lot of women working at Freedom who were involved not just in journalism and writing articles, but they were activists as well. And so it was kind of a training ground. I like to think of Hansberry getting her 10,000 hours in as an activist early on, starting with her childhood with these parents that were activists, and then kind of moving At Wisconsin, she was involved in the Young Progressives of America. She was the president her second year, and she worked on the Henry Wallace campaign. And then she goes to New York, and it's kind of like a new education, but then decides that the way she wants to reach people is through the theater. And so she, she leaves freedom.
1: She leaves freedom because she believes that there is this power in theater to not only address social issues, but to show us how we might tackle them, overcome them. It was disheartening to discover her frustration with Bobby Kennedy that you bring out toward the end of the film.
4: There's a way that even with Lorraine Hansberry, there's a mythology about who she was. You know, if you're not armed with all of the information, and like with any historical figure, over time more things come out. But we think of Bobby Kennedy in sort of this period, like, oh, he's down with all all these rights for people and the poor, but he was someplace else before he became that Bobby Kennedy. And in the middle of the Birmingham civil rights campaign, he was not at the place that we know of him now of someone really caring about
1: all but these But he issues. was already attorney general. He
4: was Yeah, he was attorney general, but in in some ways he was more concerned about, you know, law and order and not having violence than in some ways about the actual civil rights issues. And so Lorraine and the other people who joined James Baldwin at this meeting at the in the Kennedy family apartment in New York were very frustrated because it was almost like he could not hear them. They were speaking, and he couldn't hear what they were saying. And it was very frustrating. And, in fact, he brought up something about, you know, his family came from Ireland, and look, you know, what they've done. and
2: Not quite this. <laughs> and, you know,
4: Baldwin's saying something like, we've been here longer, and, you know, there's reasons that things haven't progressed. And you have to remember, this is 1963. We haven't passed the voting rights. You know, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't happened. A lot of people still couldn't vote in the South. And and that's what they were protesting. And and so it's it was really interesting to think about that meeting and realize that here you have this woman who's really verbal, is interested in communicating. And she has this opportunity almost to speak to the most powerful person yeah. on the planet, right?
1: And he can't hear her. It just brought to mind for me... Immediately Dr. King's words, we have waited long enough. And then in common parlance, another part of me wanted to turn to RFK and say, Really? <laughs> Fortunately things progressed.
4: Yeah, it was it's interesting. There's some ugly name calling in the papers afterwards. It was it's a real ordeal and because it's a visual medium we can't get we couldn't get into all of that and it was gonna take away from Lorraine's story, but it's worth reading more about that. She was only
1: 35 when she was still, she hadn't even had her 35th birthday. She reached her 35th birthday when she died uh, in 1965. What are your greatest hopes for this documentary?
4: Well, I'm hoping that a lot of people will be interested in tuning in to see it and that they will have a new level of appreciation of who Lorraine Hansberry was. In particular, it's taught in almost every school in North America. And I think that teachers and students and anybody else who's interested in the play will have a new appreciation of the play, A Raisin in the Sun, once they understand more about who Lorraine Hansberry was. As someone said on a a show I was on recently, she has been kind of preserved in the amber in a certain way that doesn't really represent the fullness of who she is. She's kind of this icon uh, of one of many black firsts in the post-World War II period. Like any icons, there's a complex human being there. And I'm excited to have people know who she was.
1: Tracy Heather Strain is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, writer, and producer. Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart premiered on PBS and is now available on Amazon Prime. You've been listening to City Lights. W.A.B.E.'s Daily Exploration of Arts and Culture. Our producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash lights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.